listening to the Bible 126 show. Father, we praise you and thank you for this opportunity that you've provided us to just gather together in the name of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you, Father, for bringing us out of our cares and trials and pressures to pause, to open your word. Father, we just pray that you would open your word to our hearts and minds and lives. Help us to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior through all these things. For we seek it in his name. Amen. We had the uh, cable version last week, David and Bathsheba and all of that. And uh, David and Bathsheba, God forgave his sin. He repented. And Psalm 51 being his prayer of repentance. But that does not deliver him from the consequences of his sin. And the consequences of his sin were prophesied that the sword would not depart his house and his wives would be given another and so forth. And we're going to see the uh, the grim realities of the seeds that he's sown occur in the next few chapters. So you could, uh, we'll jump in chapter 13, verse 1. It came to pass after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a fair sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Now get the picture. She is his half-sister because he had different mothers. Common father, but different mothers. Amnon was by Ahinoam, and um, Tamar was by uh, M-A-A-C-A-H, however you're going to throw If you're Hawaiian, you can separate those vowels. I'm not very good at that. But uh, in any case, and this is going to lead to just a, this is just to start like a domino. It's a whole series of tragedies. But um, we're going to discover that uh, Absalom is going to rebel, and uh, he's going to begin with the this whole mess is going to begin with the same sins: first, sexual immorality, followed by murder. But I'm getting ahead of the story. Here's Tamar. Tamar is a tough name. You know, I don't think many, how many of you have name a daughter Tamar these days? If Genesis 37 or 38 doesn't cure you, then uh, 2 Samuel 13 will. Uh, it's a tough name because this gal uh, uh, has a tough time. She's apparently very attractive, and um, Amnon uh, lusted after her. Don't say he, I won't say uh, um, it says he loved her, but I don't think it's the kind of love that you and I would think of love because the minute he gets fulfilled, it turns to hate. Difference between love and lust. Love is giving and lust is taking. And we're talking about taking here. Verse 2, Amnon was so distressed that he fell sick for his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. And Amnon thought it hard for him to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend. I don't know what your, your translation, mine should add a couple of quotation marks around friend. With friends like these, you can get in real trouble. And I had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very subtle man. 
And he said unto him, that is unto Ammon, Why art thou, being the king's son, lean from day to day? Wilt thou not tell me? And Ammon said unto him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. That's a strange way to put it, my brother Absalom's sister. But see, there again, it's a half-sister. You with me? Now, why would Jonadab be intriguing, conspiring, plotting with Amnon? What's in it for him? Amnon was the firstborn. Amnon was implicitly, at least, the successor to the throne of David. And so, uh, I don't know anything about Jonadab. I just assume that among his several motives... Uh, would be to uh, get in close to the heir to the throne. But that's Chuck Missler's speculation, but you can draw your own. Verse 5. And Jonadab said unto him, Lay thee down on thy bed, and pretend that thou art sick. And when thy father cometh to see thee, say unto him, I pray thee, let my sister Tamar come and give me food, and prepare the food in my sight, that I may see it, and eat it at her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended that he was sick. And when the king was come to see him, Amnon said to the king, I pray thee, let Tamar, my sister, come and make me a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat at her hand. And David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go now to thy brother Amnon's house and prepare a meal for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, and he was laid down. She took flour and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and did bake the cakes. And she took a pan and poured them out before him. But he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send out all the men from me. And they went out, every man from him. Then Amnon said unto Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber, that I may eat of thine hand. And Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them uh, into the chamber to Amnon her brother. And when she had brought him uh, to eat, he took hold of her and said, Come, lie with me, my sister. And she answered him, Nay, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing ought to be done in Israel. Do not this folly. Do not thou this folly. And I, where shall I cause my shame to go? As for thee, thou shalt be as one of the fools in Israel. Now therefore, I pray thee, speak unto the king, for he will not withhold me from thee. Now that's a little strange. I'll come back to that. Howbeit he would not hearken unto her voice, but being stronger than she, forced her and lay with her. Now, um, a lot of complicated things here. She's a half-sister. Marriage was to a, a relative like this was forbidden by Leviticus 18.11. And he was unable to seduce her, we assume, so he's forcing her. Now, you wonder about Tamar's suggestions here. Don't force me. The king won't withhold me. In other words, she's arguing that if he asks the king, the king will let him have her. Now, this could have been just a stratagem to defer the heat of passion here. However, the Jewish Talmud assumes, incidentally, that Tamar was illegitimate. And it, uh, what, what, what it bases those assumptions on, I'm not sure. It could be none as simple as the fact that since she assumes the king could give her legally to Amnon, that means that if she was illegitimately born, it would be legal for them to marry. So that may be why the Talmud makes that assumption, but it does make that assumption. And so um, um, 
the, um, so it, in other words, the Talmud assumes they could have married under some technicality, and the illegitimacy of Tamar would be a, it's a hypothesis, at least, if nothing else. Grizzly story. Um, this lesson's rated better than R, I guess, huh? Uh, X or whatever. But it's interesting how the Bible doesn't pull its punches. It puts it uh, right out there. And this just begins. It's interesting how sin begets sin. It's like it's contagious, like a contagious disease. Because this is going to end up injuring all kinds of people. It's just the beginning. Verse 15, Then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said unto her, Arise, be gone. I confess to you, I didn't get time to do a word study to find out what the Hebrew, it's a, you know, bear in mind in the Greek we have very definitive descriptions and we can make a big thing of that. Here in, the, in, in this I did not get time to back up. But I would argue pretty obviously from the context that we're talking lust here, not love. And it's interesting how once he's had her that she becomes an object of being despised. Um, I'm very intrigued with Chuck Smith's uh, prediction when he was once preaching about adultery. One of the interesting things about an adulterous relationship, the one way that God judges that is to let the two of them have each other. And uh, I have seen that in a few cases uh, around me, and it's interesting how, how uh, that can often be the, the judgment that's uh, quite suitable. In this case, of course, she's an innocent um, uh, victim, but Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he loved her. Now, that's, it's, it's, uh, it's obviously a, just a passion issue here. And he said unto her, Arise and be gone. And she said unto him, There is no cause. This evil in sending me away is greater than the other that thou didst unto me. But he would not hearken unto her. And he called a servant that ministered unto him and said, Put now this woman out from me and bolt the door after her. He's making it appear that, he was <laughs> that she attacked him, I guess. And she had a garment of several colors upon her. And there's, again, a translation thing very analogous to the one in Genesis. It's a long-sleeved robe implying her virginity. The coat of many, famous coat of many colors of Joseph, some translators believe, was a, was a seamless robe. The variegated, the, 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 it's a translation issue. Some words that are doubtful in their origin. In any case, um, uh, for such robes were the king's daughters who were virgins apparelled, and then his servant brought her out and bolted the door after her, and Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her garment of, of uh, as the King James says, several colors, that was on her, and laid her hand upon her head and went on her way crying. In other words, she rends the garment that spoke of her virginity and goes away mourning. Now, her brother is Absalom. And uh, you can begin to get the message here. How do you think Absalom feels about his sister being raped? Pretty upset. You know what makes him even more upset? He's next in line to the throne. I mean, talk about a guy getting righteously indignant, right? 
if he would have been upset about his sister being raped by Amnon, which is understandable, if Amnon's number one for the throne, the, the number two child, Chiliab, apparently died young. We don't know, but he's absent from all the succession narratives. So it's Amnon and Absalom in that order. Now, if you had an older brother uh, ahead of you in the succession, and he raped your sister, you would find it very easy to rationalize uh, some very righteous indignation. And Absalom, of course, does. In fact, he doesn't act immediately. He spends two years planning. Planning. He doesn't get mad. He gets even. Huh? <laughs> Verse 20, And Absalom, her brother, said unto her, Hath Amnon thy brother been with thee? But hold now thy peace, my sister. He is, he is thy brother. Regard not this thing. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. But when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. And Absalom spoke unto his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. So the plot gets serious. Now David is very angry, but he makes a gigantic mistake. He doesn't punish Amnon. And that uh, is, again, it's hard to judge David's mind. Amnon was his firstborn and the successor to the throne. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 17 would require the death penalty for Amnon. David doesn't do that. Why doesn't he do that? You can imagine, you can hypothecate all kinds of reasons. One is, is that David can recall a guy who committed adultery that was spared. That, uh, I mean, it's kind of hard for David, having been spared his life, when he should have died, by his own, by his own judgment, right? But Nathan spared him, so, or God spared him. It's hard for David, then, to be severe with Amnon, isn't it? In his own mind, at least. Right, But he didn't even administer a lesser punishment. And you know, you can put Deuteronomy 22, 28, and 29, chapter 22, verses 28 and 29. Look up at your leisure. We'll move on. So Absalom is going to brood for two years. During those two years, he's going to carefully plan his revenge. He may be planning a lot more, but we'll come to that uh, as we go here. Down to verse 23. And it came to pass after two full years that Absalom had sheep shearers in Baal Hazor, which is beside Ephraim. Now, by the way, Baal Hazor is about a 4,000-foot mountain, and it's about 12 miles north of Jerusalem, just to give you a rough feeling of the terrain. And, uh, the, uh, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. Why did he invite all the king's sons? To get Amnon there, right? And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, now thy servant hath sheep shears. Let the king, I beseech thee, and his servants go with thy servant. And the king said to Absalom, Nay, my son, let us all not go now, but lest we become burdensome unto thee. And he pressed him, howbeit he would not go, but blessed him. And then said Absalom, If not, I pray thee, then let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said unto him, Why should he go with thee? But Absalom pressed him, so that he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Now Absalom had commanded his servants, saying, Mark ye now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say unto you, Smite Amnon, then kill him, fear not. Have, I not, have not I commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. 
So Absalom's powerful. He's got a following. And he's got the implied status of being a successor, especially if Amnon's out of the way. Verse 29. And the servants of Absalom did unto Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's son arose, and every man got up upon his mule and fled. Came to pass while they were in the way, the tidings came to David, saying, Absalom hath slain all the king's sons, and there is not one of them left. So the first report that David gets is an exaggerated rumor. But that, of course, shocks him, gets upset, and he finds out. See, that's when he finds out it's only one. He has a sense of relief. <laughs> so, uh, now this guy, Jonadab, is, uh, he shows up again. Oh, wait, I, I skipped a verse. Verse 31, then, then, uh, then the king arose and tore his garments and lay upon the earth, and all his servants stood by with their clothes torn. In other words, David is really upset. And Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, answered and said, Let not my lord suppose that they have slain all the young men, uh, the king's sons. For Amnon only is dead. For by the appointment of Absalom, hath this, uh, it, this hath been determined from the day that he forced his sister Tamar. So David finds out only one is dead, but he also finds out that this was really a result of two years of plotting by Absalom on behalf of his sister. Verse 33, Now therefore let not my lord the king take the thing to his heart to think that all the king's son are dead, for Amnon only is dead. But Absalom fled, and the young men who kept watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there came many people by the way of the hillside behind him. And Jonadab said unto the king, Behold, the king's sons come, as thy servant said, so it is. And it came to pass, as soon as he had ceased speaking, that, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept a great deal. So David's household is being torn to shreds. First of all, incestuous rape, and now murder. And of course, Absalom flees. Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amanhur, the king of Geshur. What may not be obvious to you, he's fleeing, he flees, flees to his to spend three years with his grandfather. Uh, Talmai is his grandfather. So, uh, so David mourned for his son every day, and so Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the soul of King David longed to go forth unto Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Amnon, seeing he was dead. In other words, the king's in a jam. He's lost his first son. He's upset about that, but he mourns that. Finally reconciles to it. He misses Absalom. He loves Absalom. On the other, on the one hand, on the other hand. He can't countenance what Absalom's done. So David's got a real, a real dilemma. Because on the one hand, deep down inside, he wants to reconcile with his son. On the other hand, he also has never dealt with the sin of Absalom. There's no punishment, whatever. So, so, um, on the one, so he's in a dilemma. And this sets the stage for chapter 14. And uh, Joab, who's his chief of staff, runs the army is going to try to deal with the situation in a, in a manner that's analogous to what Nathan did. You remember Nathan had the dilemma of confronting King David with his adultery. And how does he do it? With sort of a parable. He comes into it sort of through the back door. Well, Joab is David's right hand. He runs the army for him. Joab, for probably lots of reasons, one of which Joab probably could discern David's heart. He knew that David would, li would like to find an excuse 
to reconcile with uh, Absalom. Secondly, Joab probably is not, he's not done, he's an ambitious military leader. He knows that Absalom is likely to be the successor to the throne. And it makes sense for these two men to be reconciled. The third speculation, at least on my part, is that the situation probably led to a lowering of morale in the army, which would be a concern to Joab, the general of the army, but also would probably demoralize the people of Israel because these things aren't kept secret. It's the, the common street gossip. And obviously the nation in general and the army in particular would be better off if this uh, 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 root of bitterness between them could be resolved. So, um, so, he's, so Joab has got a, a scheme rather convoluted way to try to get David's uh, to focus on this issue. Chapter 14, verse 1. Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, uh, perceived that the king's heart was toward Absalom. Joab went to Tekoa and fetched from there a wise woman and said unto her, I pray thee, pretend to be a mourner and put on now mourning apparel and anoint not thyself with oil, but, as, but be as a woman who hath long time mourned for the dead. What he's done, what Joab has done, he's gone, he's, he sought out to Tekoa, and that's about 10 miles south of uh, Jerusalem, for a, a woman who is, has distinguished herself in wise dealings. Uh, I, sound, I could facetiously point out this is probably the first use of an investment banker to solve an acquisition problem. But in any case, he wants her to pretend to be mourning and to fabricate a story to give rise to some discussion here, okay? So he tells her to, okay, uh, pretend you're mourning. Verse 3, and come to the king and speak on this manner unto him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. And when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and did obeisance and said, Help, O king. The king said unto her, What aileth thee? She answered, I am indeed a widow woman, and my husband is dead. And thy handmaid hath two sons, and they two strove together in the field, and there was none to part them, and the one smote the other and slew him. And behold, the whole family is risen against thy handmaid, and said, Deliver him that smote his brother, that we may kill him for the life of his brother uh, whom he slew. And we will destroy the heir also, so that they shall quench my coal which is left, and shall not leave to my husband neither name nor remainder upon the earth. In other words, he's trying to create a dilemma for the king to deal with. She has only two offspring, these two brothers. One killed the other, so the one is dead, and the other one is, is, is to be, uh, in effect, tried for manslaughter and killed also. But that would leave her without an heir. So what she's asking the king to do, in effect, is side with her to spare the one remaining brother so she has heirs to her name, to the, to the house. And uh, so verse 8, the king said to the woman, Go to thine house, I will give orders concerning thee. And the woman of Kutakoa said unto the king, my lord, O king, the iniquity be on me and my father's house, and the king and his throne be guiltless. So what's implied in the language is David's trying to duck this. He really doesn't want to get uh, side on this issue. And she's saying, taking him off the hook in terms of guilt, but just asking for his help. The king said, Whosoever saith anything unto thee, bring him to me, and he shall not touch thee any more. Verse 10. Verse 11. Then said she, I pray thee, let the king remember the Lord thy God, that thou wouldest not permit the avengers of blood to destroy any more, lest they destroy my son. And he said, As the Lord liveth, there shall not one hair of thy son fall to the earth. Then the woman said, Let thy handmaid, I pray thee, speak one word unto my lord the king. And he said, Say on. 
The woman said, Why then hast thou thought such a thing against the people of God? For the king doth speak this thing as one who is uh, faulty, in that the king doth not fetch home again his banished. See, she's raising this issue. What she's trying to do is create the impression that her primary concern is her own problem, but the discussion of that problem gives rise to her to comment that the king's in, a, in, an, in an analogous predicament because he's banished Absalom. That's, that's injuring, in effect, the house, the house of David, and certainly the people of Israel. So what she's going to do is she's going to raise that issue, let the king consider it, but then she's going to shift gears back to her own problem as if that was her primary interest, which, of course, is fabricated. Verse 14, so we must needs die and are as, as water spill on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Neither doth God respect any person, yet doth he devise means that his banished is not expelled from him. Now, therefore, I am come to speak of this thing unto my Lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid. And, the, and thy handmaid hath said, I will now speak unto the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his handmaid. For the king will hear to deliver his handmaid out of the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son altogether out of the inheritance of God. Then thine handmaid said, The word of my lord the king shall now be comforting. For as an angel of God, so is my lord the king, to discern good and bad. Therefore the Lord thy God will be with thee. Then the king answered and said unto the woman, Hide not from me, I pray thee, the thing which I shall ask thee. The woman said, Let my lord speak. Let my lord the king speak. The king said, Is not the hand of Joab with thee in all this? <laughs> David was not born yesterday. <laughs> he's beginning to smell a herring in this whole thing. And he's beginning to he, you know, put this all together, that this is Joab's stratagem to, to, to uh, force this issue. Is not the hand of Job with thee in all this? And the woman answered and said, As thy soul liveth, my lord the king, none can turn to the right or to the left from anything that my lord the king hath spoken. For thy servant Job, he ordered me, and he put all these words in the mouth of thine handmaid. To change the face of the matter hath thy servant Job done this thing. And my lord is wise, according to the wisdom of an angel of God, to know all things that are in the earth. <laughs> she uh, sweating it a little bit, huh? But uh, all said and done, uh, Joab has calculated very well because uh, it works. Verse 21, the king said unto Joab, Behold, now I have done this thing. Go therefore and bring the young man Absalom again. And Joab fell to the ground on his face and bowed himself and thanked the king. And Joab said, Today thy servant knoweth that I have found grace in thy sight, O my lord, O king, in that the king hath fulfilled the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. Sounds pretty good so far, right? Except that uh, David doesn't grant him an audience for two years. So that's uh, a little rough. Hmm? And the king let him uh, turn to his own house and let him not see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house and saw not the king's face. But in all Israel there was none to be so much praised as Absalom for his beauty. From the sole of his foot, even to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. The writer is making some comments here to help explain that, you know, in, uh, in, as we get to um, chapter 15, why Absalom was so popular with the people. It may shock you to realize that he's going to lead a rebellion here against none other than David. 
But Absalom, as the writer points out, was a very handsome youth. He was none as attractive as he was. And this is kind of interesting. Verse 26. Uh, see, 25, 26, sort of a parenthetical few verses here just to give us, in effect, a footnote. It says, And when he cut the hair of his head, for it was at every year's end that he cut it, because the hair was heavy on him, therefore he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels after the king's weight. That's three and a half pounds of hair per year. Eat your heart out, guys. <laughs> Getting a haircut once a year, whether you need it or not. Huh? <laughs> it's interesting that the is it, beauty is tied to the excess hair, but uh, I'll let you guys wrestle with that one. 27. And unto Absalom there were born three sons and one daughter, whose name was Tamar. She was a woman of fair countenance. Boy, there's a third Tamar, huh? Coming up here. Anyway, verse 28. So Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem and saw not the king's face. This was a big mistake in my mind. I'm not an expert on this area of the Bible, but my, my just my administrative instincts here. If De Abraham calls Absalom back to reconcile, and that makes good sense, good personal sense, good political sense. I'm sorry, what did I say? Hey, oh boy, I really am tired. Uh, excuse me. <laughs> Did I say Abraham? Gee, that's terrible. Uh, David. Uh, yeah. When David called Absalom, thanks for catching it. David uh, calls Absalom. It made good political sense. It's good administrative. But he makes a big mistake not going all the way. He's calling him back. He should have given an audience and tried to really reconcile. See, he did it halfway. And uh, indecision is uh, deadly. Deadly. We can look at our own recent administrations in this country and see how indecision is, causes, causes lives. We, uh, uh, all through literature, classic literature, Hamlet, the rest, indecision is, 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 is uh, uh, a bad solution. And David, uh, not receiving Absalom, gives Absalom another two years to get bitter and to plot and scheme to assess his alternatives, to, uh, to put together his underground and whatever. Bad idea. Two years he saw, not the king's face. Verse 29. Therefore Absalom uh, sent for Joab to have sent him to the king, but he would, ha he would not come to him. And when he sent again the second time, he would not come. Therefore he said unto his servants, See, Job's field is near mine, and he hath barley there. Go and set it on fire. And Absalom's servants set the field on fire. That's one way to get Joab's attention, huh? It won't come, um, won't return my phone calls? <laughs> See you in court, huh? <laughs> so Absalom set the field on fire. So Joab arose and came to Absalom unto his house and said to him, Why have thy servants set my field on fire? <laughs> and Absalom answered Joab and said, Behold, I, I sent unto thee, saying, Come here, that I may send thee to the king to say, why am I come from Geshur? It had been good for me to have been there still. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face, and if there not be any iniquity in me, let him kill me. If there be any iniquity in me, let him kill me. So Joab came to the king and told him, and when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king, bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. But why didn't he do this two years earlier? It's really tragic. 
The seeds of bitterness have already been sown. On the face of it, they've been reconciled. Have they really been reconciled? Not according to chapter 15 through 18. (laughs) It came to pass after this that Absalom prepared him chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate. And it was that when any man who had a controversy came to the king for judgment, then Absalom called on them, saying, Of what city art thou? He said, Thy servant is one of the tribes of Israel. And Absalom said to them, See, thy matters are good and right, but there is no man deputed of the king to hear thee. And Absalom said, Moreover, oh, that I were made judge in the land, that every man who hath any suit or cause might come unto me, and I would do him justice. <laughs> See, for four years, Absalom's been plotting, and he comes up with at least four stratagems. The first is, he's going to elevate himself through pomp and ceremony. He's got these runners before him and his horses. He's, he's got the, the, uh, the accoutrements of office here. And uh, the next thing he's going to do is start criticizing administration. He's going to criticize his father's administration of justice. Then he's going to make uh, these boastful campaign promises. You ever hear of that happening? It's funny how times have not changed, isn't it? Right? Pomp and ceremony. Remember a thing called the Iran-Contra hearings? Holiday North wasn't the issue. We're going to see it all happen again. You know, if they, if they would debate the, uh, the Persian Gulf in closed hearings, I'd be impressed. But if they're public hearings, it's all going to be another circus. And <laughs> Chris is the Father's administration of justice. Boy, if I'm in office, that's going to be different, right? Have you heard that? And uh, I assume Absalom uh, said, read my lips, gang. Huh? <laughs> I shouldn't pick on Bush, but um, in any case. And then, of course, personal charm and flattery. Verses 5 and 6. And it was that when any man came near to him to do him obeisance, he put forth his hand and took him and kissed him. Now this manner did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Tragic, tragic, tragic. There's going to be a very ill-fated rebellion and great injury to the nation. It's tragic. Why? Because of Bathsheba. All this derives. It all derives. How tragic it is. Verse 7. Came to pass after 40 years. Now that's an error, by the way. It says 40 years in the King James. But it's actually 4 years. Can't be 40. It's a scribal error. Um, Can't be 40 years because uh, (laughs) uh, David, this all happens while David's still ruling, right? And David ruled for how long? 40 years. And uh, Absalom was born in Hebron after the reign had started. So it can't be 40. It's a scribal error. The, the Septuagint, the Syriac, and also Josephus in the Antiquity, 7, uh, 196, says it's four years, not 40. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a copious error. And uh, so this is, it's actually four years, either from his return uh, from uh, Yeshua or after his reconciliation. That's ambiguous. We're not sure exactly. Anyway, after these four years, that Absalom came unto the king, I pray thee, let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed unto the Lord in Hebron. 
He's going to go to Hebron. Now, to get the picture, let's refresh your memory here about Hebron. Where was David first recognized as king? In Hebron. And he, he, he ascends to power. Then he moves his capital to Jerusalem, right? How do you think some of the people in Hebron felt about that? You're pretty upset. So you can just, just from your own, you know, knowledge of the street, if I can use that expression, you get a feeling for what's, what Absalom's up to. He's going to go down to Hebron for two reasons. One is he's further from Jerusalem, so less under the watchful eye of David. And secondly, he's likely to encounter some discontenders down there that will back him. So he's, uh, and that, of course, is exactly what happened. So um, he went to Hebron. Verse 10, Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as ye hear the sound of the trumpet, then ye shall say, Absalom reigneth in Hebron. And with Absalom uh, went 200 men out of Jerusalem who were invited, and they went in their simplicity, for they knew not anything. In other words, they're following him, but they didn't fully appreciate what he was really up to. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Galanite, David's counselor. Now, this again, uh, it tells you that it's David's counselor. And so here's Ahithophel, uh, Ahithophel <laughs> or whatever, um, who is David's counselor. What you also need to know to help understand this is that is Bathsheba's grandfather. And we can infer, because he becomes the big support for Absalom behind the scenes. So we infer that he probably was pretty upset with the treatment that his granddaughter got from David. So, see, Absalom's be, is start, starting to sur, you know, surround himself with these, these contenders. Okay. Okay. So, uh, Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from the city, even from Gal- uh, Gilo, he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy was strong for the people increased continually with Absalom. So Absalom succeeds in getting a major groundswell, a major momentum started before David realizes anything's amiss. So things in full swing. So much so that in verse 13, David's got to flee Jerusalem. Can you imagine that? The king's got to flee Jerusalem for a couple of reasons. He fears of his life and he also fears for the destruction of the city. You can tell that he didn't expect to be gone long. He left ten concubines there to run the household. So he's expecting, he's not, he's, he, I, I assume he's, he's withdrawing to let it cool down so there won't be any bloodshed, not expecting to stay away permanently. Verse 13, there came a messenger to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom. And David said unto all his servants who were with him in Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, for we shall not else escape from Absalom. Make speed to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring evil upon us, and smite the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said unto the king, Behold, thy servants are ready to go, whatsoever my lord the king shall appoint. That's pretty impressive. He's got a loyal following. And, uh, so uh, that's going to turn out to be important. Um, Oh, we get that. Okay, um, I knew something else coming. That's in verse 18. Okay, verse 16. And the king went forth and all his household after him. And the king left ten women who were concubines to keep the house. And the king went forth and all the people after him and tarried in a place that was afar off. And all the servants passed on beside him and all the Cherethites and all the Pelethites and all the Gittites 
600 men who came after him from Gath passed on before the king. That's kind of, the Gittites means they're men from Gath. That's not obvious from the English, but uh, we're going to discover there's 600 Philistine mercenaries that are loyal to King David. Probably an outgrowth of his you know, intrigues down there. We're going to encounter here in verse 19 a very interesting, specific Gittite, a guy from Gath, by Ithai, I-T-T-A-I. And this guy is going to be loyal to David. In fact, his, the relationship between he and David can't help but to remind you of the relationship between Ruth the Moabitess and Naomi, the book of Ruth, first chapter, if you recall. And Ithai is going to be loyal. We're going to discover uh, later on that he's going to end up being in charge of one-third of the army. So uh, he's not Jewish. He's a, he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a Philistine, but uh, presumably a convert. Okay. Uh, verse 19, Then said the king to Atai the Gittite, why goest, uh, why goest thou also with us? Return to thy place and abide with the king, for thou art a foreigner and also an exile. Whereas thou camest but yesterday, should I this day make thee go up and down with us, seeing I go wherever I may, return thou and take back thy brethren, mercy and truth be with thee. And Atai answered the king and said, As the Lord liveth and as my lord the king liveth, surely in what place my lord the king shall be, whether in death or life, even there also will thy servant be. And this isn't feigned or postured. He turns out to be a loyal guy that ends up in command later on. Verse 22, David said in the Gittite, Go and pass over. And Atai the Gittite passed over and all his men and all the little ones who were with them. And all the country wept with a loud voice and all the people passed over. The king also himself over the brook Kidron. And all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. We've got a little, okay, we'll go, read a little more and then I'll, I'll give you some. Well, what David's going to do, what I want to get to here, the next few verses are going to be very important because David is going to set up a very critical intelligence network. He's going to set up his, you know, um, what we would call G2, or uh, what is it, M something. Yeah, MI5, right. Say, Ian Fleming, where are you when I need you? Um, (laughs) Okay, MI5. Verse 24. And Lozadok also, and all the leaders, now Zadok's the priest, right? And all the Levites with them, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God, and they set down the Ark of God. And Biathar went up until the people had passed out of the city. In other words, they're leaving, but they're taking the Ark with them, with David. If you were David, what would you do? Well, if you have the Ark, you've got the presence of God on your side, right? Great insight into David. What does David instruct them to do? Take it back. Leave it there. He's going to let the Lord work this out. He's not going to take matters in his own hands. He'll leave for the interest of safety of the city and himself, but he commands the ark to be taken back and left there. That's a gutsy thing. That's a gutsy thing in a lot of ways. It turns out to be very fortuitous because the priests that are with the ark will be the center of his intelligence network. Verse 25, the king said unto Zadok, Carry back the ark of God in the city, if I shall find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he shall bring me again and show me both it and its habitation. But if he thus say, I have no delight in thee, behold, here am I. Let him do to me as seemeth good unto him. Do you prepare to do that? you prepare to do that? Hey, Lord, it's up to you. You're at crossroads. 
We all are. I have mine. You have yours. It's interesting how sometimes the Lord has to use a very heavy one to get the point across. But are you prepared to do that? Hey, if I, I'll leave it up to you, Lord. If I'm delighting in you, then you'll take care of it. And if not, so be it. Huh? Really willing to put it in the Lord's hands. If you do that, you'll get really well acquainted with the Psalms. A lot of people say, gee, we get acquainted with the book of Job. book of Job doesn't fit. We found that out. I taught the book of Job recently, figuring that's a good time in my life to do this. Wrong. Doesn't fit at all. Job was innocent. I I worked hard to get in the mess I'm in. (laughs) Now, how many going through trials? Can I see a show of hands? Oh, we got the refugees from the Job study here, don't we? Yeah. You prepared to do what David did? Really put it in the Lord's hands. Interesting. Does he say, I have no delight in thee? Behold, here I am. Let him do to me as seemeth good unto him. By the way, if you do that, you're not giving up anything because he's going to do it anyway. (laughs) God is in control, praise God. Verse 27. By the way, in all that, you got an advantage. You got an advantage. Because you know God loves you. He's a loving Father. And no matter how dark it gets, you're in the valley of the shadow of death, right? Anyway, verse 27, the king said unto, I said also unto Zadok the priest, Art not thou a seer? Return unto the city in peace, and your two sons with you, Ahamiah's and the, uh, thy son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, these two priests, Zadok and Abiathar, have sons. Ahamaz and uh, Jonathan. And these two guys are going to be the runners. They're going to be the link in the intelligence network. Verse 20. See, I will tarry in the plain of the wilderness until there come word from you to inform me. Zadok, therefore, and Biathar carried the ark of God again to Jerusalem, and they tarried there. And David went up by the ascent of Mount of Olivet and wept as he went up and had his head covered. And he went barefoot. And all the people who were with him covered every man his head. And they went up, weeping as they went up. Well, can you imagine? Can you imagine the, the emotion of this time? Leaving Jerusalem. Here's the king. Leaving Jerusalem. And David went up by the... Oh, excuse me. Uh, and verse 31. And one told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray thee, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. So here's the grandfather of, of Bathsheba being the primary advisor to Absalom. And the Lord is going to hearken to David's prayer because the advice, the counsel of Ahithophel is going to be rejected in, under circumstances that will cause Ahithophel to take his own life. He will commit suicide before this is over. Verse 32, It came to pass that when David was come to the top of the mount where he worshipped God, behold, Hushai, the archite, came to meet him with his coat torn and earth upon his head, and to whom David said, If thou passest on with me, then thou shalt be a burden unto me. Now see, here he, he gets another key player. Um, he's going to take this very faithful servant. This uh, Hushai is, is faithful to David, but is going to pretend to be uh, faithful to Absalom. So you students of 
McCary or Ewan Fleming. Here, here we got our mole. Huh? And he's going to, the one that's going to thwart the counsel of Hennephel uh, to Absalom. And he's the guy that's going to relay the official classified information unto the priests and their sons will pass it on to David. So that's the, the setting here. Getting kind of fun. How many of you knew there are secret codes in the Bible? Did you know that? How many knew that? I want to see who we're in the Isaiah and Jeremiah study. See, that's where I found out. You know, if you if you study, if you're a student of cryptography, you're familiar with the classic work by David Kahn, the Code Breakers. And on pages uh, 76 through 94, you'll find a discussion of uh, encryption in the Old Testament. To a student of secret writing, uh, that's just a historical oddity. But uh, to a student of the Scripture that knows of its supernatural origin, it's profoundly significant. The Holy Spirit would 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 put in encryptions. Jeremiah 26 and Isaiah 7 are two places where that shows up, and I won't get into it now because it is this is just a distracting footnote. But uh, it gives you an excuse to review your notes on Jeremiah 26, as I recall, and uh, Isaiah 7 are two places, classic places where. In one of the, of the Jeremiah 26 passages, you have to be the name Babylon that's encrypted. And it's in, in Isaiah 7, it's a Ramalia. It reveals the plot of the kings. But um, and it's not a big, profound spiritual thing. It's just for those of you that, are, that like to, you know, collect biblical trivia, you can run with that. Of course, I say that with my tongue in cheek because I think there's nothing trivial in the Scripture. And if the Holy Spirit put encryption there, there's probably others that the CIA doesn't know about because they're supernaturally discerned. And, uh, I'll leave that with you. <clears throat> now I'll be good. Okay. Um, see, before you judge me too harshly for these tangents, you need to give me credit for the ones I don't send you on. See? <laughs> Okay, we have Hushai here being set up because he's, 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 he's faithful to David, but he's going to play them all. Um, at verse 33, unto whom David said, If thou passest on with me, then thou shalt be a burden unto me. But if thou return to the city and say unto Absalom, I will be thy servant, O king, as I have been thy father's servant up to this time, so will I now also be thy servant. Then mayest thou for me defeat the counsel of Ahithophel. And hast thou not there with thee Zadok and Abiathar the priests? Therefore it shall be that whatsoever thing thou shalt hear out of the king's house, thou shalt tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. And behold, they have there with them their two sons, Ahimaaz and Zadok's son Jonathan, and Abiathar's son, um, and Jonathan Abiathar's son. And by them ye shall uh, send unto me everything that they can hear. So Hushai the king's friend came into the city, and Absalom came to the city of Jerusalem. David obviously trusts Hushai because he's told him three tiers of the network. That's a no-no if you're familiar with this sort of thing. I won't ask him. I won't show for hands here. I haven't been with the agency. We'll move right on. I think I'm in real trouble now. Verse Chapter 16. And when David was a little past the top of the hill, behold, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth. Remember him? He was the crippled son of Saul. And Ziba was his servant, remember? Anyway, Ziba uh, uh, met him with a couple of asses saddled, and upon them two hundred loaves of bread, and a hundred bunches of raisins, and a hundred of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. 
And the king said unto Ziba, What meanest thou by these? And Ziba said, The asses are for thy king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine that such as are faint in the wilderness may drink. And the king said, And where is thy master's son? And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he abideth in Jerusalem, for he said, Today shall the house of Israel restore to me the kingdom of my father. Oh, really? Remember, Mephibosheth was the son of Saul. Then said king to Ziba, Behold, now incidentally, this, this statement, this, uh, what, what Ziba is saying to David implies disloyalty of Mephibosheth, right? Is that true? No. We're going to discover later it's fabricated. It's not true. Um, in chapter 19, verses 24 through 28, we'll discover that Mephibosheth is not disloyal. This is Ziba trying to ingratiate himself to the king. Boy, it must be tough to be king, huh? You can't, you can't tell who is lying. Same thing's true, by the way, if you're head of a business or head of an organization. Is it tough? Is it tough to get straight information? Between the sycophants on the one hand and the enemies on the other, and uh, um, it's uh, the signal-to-noise ratio is terrible. More noise than signal. And David faces the same problem. You know, he can't tell who's buttering up for some scheme. See? Verse 4, then the king, but the king buys it. The king said to Ziba, Behold, thine are all that pertain unto Mephibosheth. And Ziba said, I humbly beseech thee that I may find grace in thy sight, O my lord, uh, O king. He just gave him Mephibosheth's household, and uh, so he bought into the program here. So old Ziba played it pretty cool. Had a few bribes, a good story, and he made a score. That's too bad. Okay. Um, now, when the King David came to Bahurim, and that's at the edge of the wilderness of Judea, behold, there came out of it came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei. Uh, the son of Gera, and he came forth and cursed continuously as he came. This is a distant relative of Saul. And he cast stones at David, and at all the servants of King David, and all the people, and all the mighty men that were on his right hand and on his left. Thus said Shimei, when he cursed, Come out, come out, thou bloody man, and thou worthless fellow. Shimei is upset, huh? Lord hath returned upon thee all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose stead thou hast reigned. And the Lord hath delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom thy son. And behold, thou art taken in thy mischief, because thou art a bloody man. This guy is trying to hang it on David that he was wrong in taking Saul's throne. That's the wrong rap, guy. Yes, there's blood in David's house, but it has to do with his murder of Uriah, not Saul. So this guy is speaking as if from the Lord, and it would seem that David hears it as if it's from the Lord. But it doesn't compute. Let's move on. Verse 9. Then said Abishai, the son of Zeriah, the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let me go over, I pray thee, and take off his head. 
<laughs> the spirit of Simon Peter. He's in Second Samuel, huh? Peter, where are you when we need you? <laughs> it's, it's interesting, you know. You can you, you immediately know which which part you know that you'd put Clint Eastwood in, wouldn't you? Huh? Right. Abishai says to David, you know, make my day. Anyway, the king said, What have I to do with you, ye sons of Zariah? Let him curse, because the Lord hath said unto him, Curse David. Who shall then say, Why hast thou done so? See, David won't let him do it. It's interesting, by the way, that the, 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 the feelings here, clearly from this, this rebuttal, are opposite between Abishai and, and David. David's attitude is let him curse. So his view really is, is that if he's of the Lord, he's not going to cut his head off. He's not of the Lord, but it doesn't matter. What do I do with you, you sons of Zerah? So let him curse, because the Lord hath said unto him, Curse David. Who then shall say, Why is that uncertain? David said to Abishai and all his servants, Behold, my son, who came forth out of my own body, seeketh my life. How much more now may this Benjamite do it? Let him alone, let him curse, for the Lord hath bidden him. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and that the Lord will require me good of his, of his cursing this day. As David and his men... And David's an interesting guy, isn't he? You know, you can't, one of the main things that we should... You know, there's obviously... You can't possibly exhaust um, the Scripture, especially in the first pass like we're going through, and there's many lessons here. But the one thing we really should try to appropriate to ourselves is the person of David. If, for many reasons because of his position. One of the titles of Jesus Christ is as the son of David. David's the one man in the Bible that God says he's after my own heart. So we need to understand David. But what an interesting guy. Minister of music, professional musician, a poet, shepherd, and a shrewd military general. We'll see that coming up. Absalom and his gang are going to be no match for the seasoned troops of David under his command. How many, how many Marines are here? Any Marines? Right? No? No? Uh, oh, they're all, that's right. They're, I'm sorry, they're out of town. They're out of town. <laughs> Mister. <laughs> you know I have round shoulders and a flat forehead. You know that, don't you? The round shoulders says, I don't know. And when you tell me, of course. <laughs> Anyway, we were back here with Shimei on him. Okay, so uh, verse 13, that David his men went on the way, and Shimei went along the hillside opposite him, and cursed as he went, and threw stones at him, and cast dust. And the king and all the people who were with him became weary and refreshed themselves there. Now we flash back. The camera switches back to Jerusalem. And Absalom and all the people and the men of Israel came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with them. And it came to pass when Hushai, the archite, David's friend, was come unto Absalom, that Hushai said unto Absalom, God save the king, God save the king. And Absalom said unto Hushai, Is this thy kindness to thy friend? Why wentest thou not with thy friend? Hushai said unto Absalom, Nay, but whom the Lord and his people and all the men of Israel choose, this will I, his will I be, and with him will I abide. And again, whom should I serve? Should I not serve the presence of his son? As I have served in thy father's presence, so will I be in thy presence. 
So he bought into that, huh? Eloquent guy here. Then said Absalom to Hittophel, Give counsel among you what we shall do. And Hittophel said unto Absalom, Go in unto thy father's concubines, whom he hath left to keep house. And all Israel shall hear that thou art abhorred of thy father. Then shall the hands of all that are with thee be strong. So they spread Absalom a tent upon the top of the house. And Absalom went in unto his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Boy. And the counsel of Ahithophel, which he counseled in those days, was as if a man had inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. In other words, this guy's a real influential. He taught, people regarded what he said as if it came from God. And he counsels Absalom to, do, to take these concubines in public. Why did he do that? Two reasons at least. Two reasons at least. Now, this is the greatest possible insult he can give David. Incidentally, the seizure of the royal harem in ancient times was equivalent to demonstrating possession of the throne. So it's not just an act of lust. It's a political maneuver. Uh, back in chapter 3, verse 7, we saw hints of that, where there was an accusation of that sort of thing for that very reason. So the, the, the taking of the royal harem was considered a port, you know, a, a, a tantamount to the throne itself. But there's a couple of other ramifications. This is intended by Hedefeld. This is intended to remove any possibility of recon future reconciliation between Absalom and David. This gave them each, put them each in a position they could never back down. If, if he, it doesn't take a lot of insight into that culture to, to, be, to, 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 to appropriate that understanding. So, um, okay. Chapter 17. Here's where Hushai earns his bread. Moreover, Hittifel said unto Absalom, Let me now, uh, uh, let me now, Choose out 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue after David this night. And I will come upon him while he is weary and weak-handed, and will make him afraid. And all the people who are with him shall flee, and I will smite the king only. And I'll bring back all the people with thee. The man whom thou seekest is as if all return. So all the people shall be in peace. And the saying pleased Absalom well and the elders of Israel. Pretty shrewd counsel, frankly. Hit him now, hard, quick. Sounds like Israel, doesn't it? Hit him hard and quick. And that was a strategy, from Absalom's point of view, that would have been probably pretty shrewd. But fortunately, that isn't what Absalom ends up doing. Verse 5, Then said Absalom, Call now Hushai the archite also, and let us like, hear likewise what he saith. And when Hushai was come to Absalom, Absalom spoke unto him, saying, Ahithophel hath spoken after this manner. What uh, shall we do after his saying? If not, speak thou. And Hushai said unto Absalom, The counsel that Ahithophel hath given is not good at this time. <laughs> For, said Hushai, thou knowest thy father and his men, that they are mighty men, and they are chafed in their minds, like a bear robbed of her whelps in the field. And thy father is a man of war, and he will not lodge with the people. Behold, he is hidden now in some pit or in some other place. And it will come to pass, and when some of them are overthrown at the first, that, whatsoever, that whosoever heareth it will say, There is a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. 
And he also who is valiant, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, shall utterly melt. For all Israel knoweth that thy father is a mighty man, and they who are with him are valiant men. Therefore I counsel that all Israel be generally gathered unto thee, from Dan even to Beersheba, as the sand that is by the sea for multitude, that thou go to battle in thine own person. So shall we come upon him in some place where he shall be found, and we will light upon him as the dew falleth on the ground. And of him and all the men who are with him, there shall not be left so much as one. Moreover, if he be gotten into a city, then shall all Israel bring ropes to that city, and we will draw it into the river until there shall not be one stone found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord hath appointed to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring evil upon Absalom. That's the footnote that is explanatory by the writer. For the Lord hath appointed to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring evil upon Absalom. See, in other words, Ahithophel is good advice, militarily speaking. But fortunately, Hushai here, whether you see him as a David's mole or whether you see him as the vo voice of God, and he's obviously both, um, he, he, his main motive is to get Absalom to slow down so word can get to David to get organized. And um, that's exactly, of course, what happens. Verse 15. <clears throat> and Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Thus and thus say, uh, said did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and thus have I counseled. Now therefore, send quickly and tell David, saying, Lodge not this night in the plains of the wilderness, but speedily pass over, lest the king be swallowed up and all the people that are with him. Now Jonathan and Hymaz, those are the sons, stayed by Enrogel and uh, that for they might not be seen to come into the city. And a maidservant went and told them, and they went and told King David. So there's the intelligence network at work, huh? Nevertheless, a lad saw them and told Absalom, but they went, both of them, quickly, and they came to a man's house in Bahrim, and they and, uh, and had a well in the court, and they went down to it. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and spread uh, ground grain upon it, and the thing was not known. And when Absalom's servants came to the woman to the house, they said, Where is Ahimez and Jonathan? And the woman said unto them, They are gone over by the brook of water. And when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. It came to pass after they were departed that they came up out of the well, and they went and told King David, and said unto David, Arise and pass quickly over the water, for thus hath Ahithophel counseled against you. Then David arose and all the people who were with him, and they passed over the Jordan. By the morning light there was, not, was left not one of them who was not gone over the Jordan. And when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his ass and arose and went home to his house, to his city, and put his household in order and hung himself and died and was buried in the sepulcher of his father. That's a little overreacting, huh? He obviously was humiliated by the rejection of his advice, but there's probably another undertone here. He could see, he foresaw that Absalom was going to be defeated and his he was dog meat when David was back in control. So he, uh, he foresaw the defeat and, 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 and took, took that, that way out. Okay. So David's crossed the Jordan to Manaheim, and he's, uh, uh, it, this is Ishbosheth's former capital in Jordan. 
Verse 24, David came to Mannheim, and Absalom passed over to the, uh, the Jordan, and he and all the men of Israel with him, and Absalom made Amasa the captain of the host instead of Joab. Now, Amasa is the temporary, you know, uh, successor. Now, incidentally, David is going to be, on this side, he's going to be provisioned by Shobi, who is David's vassal in the Jordan, and uh, in the Ammon, that is, and uh, the other rulers were his vassals. So they're going to support him while he's in exile here. Okay. Massa uh, was a man's son whose name was Ithra the Israelite who went into Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister to Zariah, Job's mother. So Israel and Absalom encamped in the, in the land of Gilead. And it came to pass when David was come to Mannheim that Shobai, the son of Nahash, of Rabbah, the children of Ammon, and Makir, the son of Emil, of Lodibar, and Barzillai, the Gileite of <laughs> Rogalim, brought beds and basins, earthen vessels, and wheat, and barley, and flour, and parched grain, and beans, and lentils, and parched pulse, and honey, and butter, and sheep, and cheese of cows for David, for the people who were with him, uh, and for the people who were with him to eat. And they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. These are kings there that were his vassals, and they are obviously supporting him. We're probably... Close enough to the hour. Um, we're going to, uh, we'll pick up uh, chapter 18 next time. What we're going to discover, just as those who want to read ahead a little bit, David is going to divide his organization into three companies. And he does that's frequently done in the Bible. We see it in Judges 7.16. We see it in 1 Samuel 11 and also 13. So it's happened at least three times. It's also the basic structure of the Prussian attack. Prussia was a country that was very... Uh, 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 absent natural resources, and so over generations they trained military. The, the, the military traditions in Prussia, of course, were the core of the general staff uh, uh, throughout Germany's history. And their whole style is uh, operates in threes, two up and one in reserve. That's, that, that's the Prussian style. And it's the doctrine of the Prussian military that underlies the whole doctrine of the Marine Corps. The Marine Corps approaches and organizes things is quite different than other services do. But it comes out of that Prussian doctrine, and I would argue that same doctrine shows up in Judges, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. It's interesting uh, that, um, that uh, Israel also, again, it's a, it's a military style that comes from a whole philosophy of not being able to sustain a long battle. Marine Corps is a tight, small service. If they're going to win, they've got to win early. And Prussia was the same way. If they're going to, the Blitzkrieg idea was the same spirit. You hit them hard and quick and get over with. And that's exactly the way Israel operates. That would be their formula for the present Iraq crisis. Get in there quick, hard, and hit them with all you got. And that's the only way to play. It's interesting. That's what the Prussians did. That's what the Marine Corps style typically is, if given the chance. And that's also uh, Israel style. A little. Did I? I'm sorry about that. Yeah. Uh, Pray for me. I'm still in the flesh. Yeah. Um, yeah, I like Chuck Smith's remedy. Remember, we were on TBN and uh, turned to Chuck to what would be his formula. And he opened with a few sentences that sounded pacifistic. You know, he started saying that uh, it all depends on what value you put on human life. And uh, <laughs> our boys are too valuable to do anything other than nuke them. <laughs> He didn't say it quite that way, but almost that way. 
that if you're going to play this game, you play to win. You don't play for fooling around. The politicians will destroy, politicians will destroy lives. And indecision will kill, destroy lives. Jimmy Carter was a classmate of mine. I mean, he was nail cabby. And uh, the sweet guy meant well, but boy, he killed millions of people with indecision. And uh, then also trying to micromanage it from the White House. Disaster. The Israelis have the right approach. You got a mission, give the, guy, the best guy you got, put him in charge, and turn him loose. That's what, that's what made Entebbe. And uh, if we're going to play that game, you decide whether you're going to play or not. If you're going to play, you play to win. You don't play to. There, there, there's a. Winning isn't everything, but losing is nothing. And, uh, <laughs> sorry about that. That should all, get that all off the tape, I think. <laughs> Let's quickly stand for a word of prayer. Interesting guy, David. By no means whitewashed in the Bible. This is not a, a promo uh, in the Bible. We, he see, we see his uh, dark side. We see his sin. We see his failures. We see his... But we, in all of this, it's interesting to see his heart. When he sinned, he didn't excuse it or explain it or condone it. He confessed it and repented of it immediately. Didn't him or, didn't him or her. Read Psalm 51 as your homework. It's interesting. Here he is fleeing. His own son is leading a rebellion against him. And it would have been a shrewd military maneuver to take the ark. It would be the figurehead, the, the symbolic leadership of Israel. And he sends it back. Let the Lord do what's good to him. If the Lord delight in me, there will be no problem. If he doesn't, so be it. huh? Boy, if we could take that example. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we praise you for loving us so much as to give us this record. We thank you, Father, that you've Put all things, whatsoever written aforetime, were written here for our learning. So, Father, we would just pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would take these things and show us those things that you would have applied to our own lives. And, Father, we thank you for the testimony of David. We thank you, Father, that in this man we see his strengths and his failures, and yet we see his heart turned to you. And, Father, as we confront our own trials and abuses and challenges and injustices and pressures and problems, Father. We just thank you, Father, that you're always there. Father, we would ask that through your Holy Spirit you would keep our hearts and minds stayed on you. That we might just move in the comfort and confidence that you're way ahead of us and you know the end from the beginning and that these trials you're putting us through are for our learning and for our growth and for reasons that only you can apprehend. So, Father, we just ask as a gift of your grace, help us, Father, to trust you more. Help us, Father, to just cast all our cares upon you. For we commit all these things before you, Father. In the name of Jesus, we thank you, Father, for the precision of your caring, that we can endure no concern or no problem that you don't already not only know about but have resolved. Help us, Father, just to be patient and trust with you. Trust you. We commit all these things before you in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>